unpacking it. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 uh, is our passage this morning on which the sermon is based. We live, <clears throat> we live in a culture that doesn't value patience. Uh, it's a culture of impatience. Fast food isn't fast enough. The drive through isn't fast enough. You start downloading a song or a picture or a movie, and 18 seconds into your download, you're like, forget it. <laughs> this is too slow. Um, I, I hope that Stranger Things Season 2 will have a scene that shows what it was like back in the 1980s to go to uh, your local video store, your Blockbuster Video. Um, you know, you, you, in order to get a movie back then, <laughs> you had to get in your car and <laughs> drive and stand there and look at a bunch of plastic movies on the shelf, and it took at least an hour. And <laughs> you know, it took days for the post office to deliver letters. But now, I mean, the way things work, if, if you have a computer that takes one more minute to boot up than the next computer, then that computer, what do we call that computer? We call that a dinosaur. We have instant messaging. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Instant messaging. We expect everything to be instant. As one author puts it, you can make a case that never before in the history of the world was there a culture in which it was more difficult to be patient than it is in ours, which is probably true. But we all know that waiting is an ancient, age-old problem. Do you know what has always been, in every age, in every time, in every place, what has always been the hardest thing to wait for? What, what is it? It's, the, it's that word justice. Justice for the oppressed has always been the hardest thing to wait for. The old Bailey building in downtown London is, I think it's the highest level criminal court for England and Wales. At the highest point atop the old Bailey, there is a, a golden statue of Lady Justice. And in one hand, she holds the scale of justice. And in the other hand, she holds the sword of judgment. The hardest thing in the world is to wait for her to act as these Christians to whom James is writing uh, are discovering. See, I think that the majority of those that he's addressing here in 7 through 12 are those who were oppressed by the rich people in verses 1 through 6. If you heard the sermon last week, you know what I'm talking about. They have suffered serious abuses at the hands of the ruling class. They are, by and large, the have-nots, and the others were the haves, and they're waiting for Lady Justice to act. You may be waiting today for justice, just like them, or you may be waiting for test results. You may be waiting for a breakthrough in very difficult circumstances. You may be waiting for who knows what, but listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say to you. Verse 7, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the, to the, until the Lord's coming, until the coming of our Lord See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. Do not grumble against one another 
or you will be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In verse 12, I don't know. It's hard to know how verse 12 fits exactly with 7 through 11. Maybe one of you want to, Bible sleuths want to come up after the service and tell me how it fits. But um, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The passage breaks down into two short sections this morning. Verses 7 through 9, you have the farmer as an illustration of patience. James uses one word, one Greek word, for patience in 7 through 9. Then in 10 through 12, he uses a different Greek word, which is normally translated steadfastness. And he uses Job and the prophets as an example, illustration of steadfastness. So what I thought we would do, we would start with the prophets. We'll go prophets then Job, and then the farmer, all the while asking the question, how does God want us to wait? Uh, Because the sad uh, and obvious fact about life in this world is you don't have a choice. You are going to wait. The question is, how do you wait? How do you wait with patience and steadfastness? So the prophets. Isaiah chapter 6 one of the most famous passages in all the Old Testament. God comes and he says, Isaiah, I got a job for you. Over the next 20 to 30 years of your life, I'm going to send you to preach the gospel to a group of people who are never, ever, ever going to listen. Over the next two decades, no one will ever believe your message. No one will ever understand your message I mean, if you're a teacher and uh, somebody at the beginning of your teaching career said, okay, for 30 years, none of your students are going to listen to you, would you have taken that job? No. Um, your career is a failure if you're a preacher who preaches and none of your ministry initiatives ever work <laughs> and, and every message that you speak is met with deaf ears. 30 years of what had to have been frustration and futility on the job, a failed career. And here's the catch. God never told Isaiah why he was made to suffer like this. He never told him. Fast forward about 100 years later. Jeremiah, I have a job for you. To which Jeremiah replies, uh-uh. <laughs> if you remember, Jeremiah is like, no, I don't, I don't want it. I've, I've seen what's happened before. Here's what I want you to do, Jeremiah. I want you to tell the people of Israel to lay down their arms and to surrender unconditionally to King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. Even though your city is still well fortified, even though the battle hasn't even started yet, I want you to tell them to offer no more resistance, but fling wide the gates of their city for them to enter, to plunder, rape, and kill. For I have sent Nebuchadnezzar as the sword of judgment upon the people, and he is going to triumph. If, you, if you've got a guy running around your city who is saying, 
let's surrender. Before the battle has even begun, I mean, obviously, he's going to be considered a traitor, right? He's being paid off. And for 20 years of his life, Jeremiah was on the run constantly because people were trying to kill him because that's what you do to traitors and scum like that. The Babylonians, if you know the story, the Babylonians eventually conquer the city and take the Israelites off into exile. Uh, Jeremiah is also taken off into exile with them. And after they have relocated to the city of Babylon, God comes to Jeremiah again and says, all right, I got another message for you. Tell the people to submit. Submit to your Babylonian overlords and adopt Babylonian cultural and culture and customs and become productive members of Babylonian society. <laughs> and so, of course, anybody who hears that message thinks that all of the previous judgments about him being a traitor are 100% true. I mean, think of it. A, tra- a traitor is the lowest scum in any culture and society. And just like Isaiah, <clears throat> God never tells Jeremiah why he is made to suffer such a miserable kind of life. With that in mind, I want you to look at verse 11, or rather verse 10, 10 and 11, where James says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. The Greek word, if I'm not mistaken, at the end of 11 is the word hupo. Mone, from which we get the prefix hyper, hupo, hyper. And then the second half, I think the, um, the noun, the verb, whatever, is mone, stand. Consider the prophets who hupo moned, who, who hyper stood. The illustration Tim Keller uses for hupo mone, he says, If you are in a battle and your commanding officer comes to you and says, stand right there, occupy this position, no matter what they throw at you, soldier, or how fierce the attack, you cannot retreat. Don't give any ground. Don't even take a step back because you cannot let the enemy get past you. Um, That's what it means to hyperstand. That's what the the prophets were being called to do. I mean, really, they had to hyperstand in the darkness. They had to hyperstand groping around for the hand of God, locked in the cave, not being able to know, you know, what's up with this? Remember what a good life Hosea, the prophet, had? God, why did you make me marry a woman who was formerly a prostitute? And no matter how much I love this woman, she will never love me back. And no no matter how many times I forgive her, she will always remain faithful. And God never tells Hosea why he's made to suffer this much. I'm I'm struck by verses 10 and 11, both by the command that you've got to hyperstand and the reality that in every single case, of the prophets, their lives were a mess. Nothing ever went right for them. Do you know, you have any friends like that? It seems like everything they touch turns to manure and nothing ever goes right for them. These men were hated, they felt abandoned, they were incredulous, and they were told to, told to hold that ground. Don't move an inch. I want you to trust and obey me even though you can't see how any of this makes any sense. Love this, uh, again, quote from Keller. 
He says, steadfastness is living the way you ought to live, doing the things you ought to do, and being the person you ought to be, even though life has gone terribly wrong. Living the way you ought to live, doing the things you ought to do, being the person you ought to be, when life has just, it's gone terribly, terribly wrong. If we don't expect to feel abandoned by God sometime in this life, then we ain't reading the Bible. I realize that none of us are prophets and we have very different callings from God. But if you don't go into this Christian life expecting to feel frustrated, angry, abandoned, and agnostic towards God, utterly and hopelessly abandoned sometimes, um, with the vast majority of your questions never getting in any answers, if you don't go in with that expectation, then, um, well, it'll crush you, won't it? When it happens. But they lived the way they ought to live, did the things they ought to do, and were the people they ought to be anyway. Anyway. In J.R.R. Tolkien's Silmarillion, we are introduced to a character by the name of Huron, who has to stand in the gap and buy time so that his friends can um, make a retreat behind him. Huron, if you read... um, that book, kind of a slow-going <laughs> book, uh, herein he wields a two-edged sword or axe, and it said that 70 times he swung that axe and no enemy could get near. He was so powerful and ferocious. Every time the enemy came, 70 times he swung the axe and he repelled the enemy. And each time he swung the axe, he said, day shall come again. Until finally, the enemy was so numerous that they just stampeded him and they crushed him under the weight of his feet. Do you remember what he was called? Huron the Steadfast. And Huron is a picture of Christ who stood for us. Blessed is the Christian who also hyperstands when they are waiting. Secondly, let's go on to Job. Job is another tragic story. One disaster wiped out all of his wealth. A second disaster wiped out all of his children. And then he gets contracts some kind of disease and it it wipes out his health. So Job, he gets the full trifecta. Wealth, health, family, and you probably, you could add the fourth to it, friends. He loses all of his friends. Uh, That's a pretty tragic life, obviously. But verse 11 in the King James Version it says this, it says, uh, ye have heard of the patience of Job. And we use that phrase sometimes, don't we? You, you, my um, uncle was a very, he, he, was a, he was a character. He, um, he was one of those guys that was tough to live with. Good man, I, I did love him sometimes. <laughs> but more, I, he, he had such a temper. And then, then he was married to the most saintly Aunt Gay my Aunt Gay, and uh, we would say things like, yeah, Aunt Gay, she's remarkable. She's a saint. She has the patience of Job. Anybody heard that expression before? Sure, we have. When people say that, I I ask myself, I wonder, have you ever actually read the book of Job (laughs) from cover to cover? What? Because almost all of the book of Job is focused on the impatience of Job. 
Job, that character who griped his way right through the book, complaining bitterly against God and grumbling about his rotten friends, which are the very things that James tells us in verse 9 not to do. You'd think it would say, ye have heard of the impatience of Job. Isn't this wonderful? When God evaluates Job's life and character, he judges him not by the 30 bad chapters, <laughs> but by the one good one, or the one and a half good ones. I think it's the, is it the last half of verse, or chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3. When God evaluates Job's life and character, it's not by all the complaints and, and all the defects in the man's character, but by the few moments of virtue that he displays. And I'm telling you, friends, that is God's M.O. That is him, his M.O. You take the case of Jesus bungling disciples. Yeah, those guys. The guys who uh, oftentimes misinterpreted him, didn't believe him, who sometimes would rebuke him. They rebuked the Lord of the universe. Don't you care if we're going to die in this boat? Those bungling disciples in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he says, he says in that prayer, he says, Father, these guys, they have obeyed your word. Father, they have obeyed your word. That's Jesus' evaluation of those men even though 99 out of 100 times they had disobeyed his word. But when Jesus looks at that one time, because he is compassionate and merciful, uh, part of his compassion and mercy is he evaluates us differently than kind of everybody else does. Jesus is not a critic. He's not your worst critic. We all have somebody in our lives, maybe multiple people in our lives, who always remember all our mistakes. And they're always bringing that up. They, all, they, can, they can always, in a moment's notice, tell us about chapters 4 through 34 in, in our Job experience. Um, they, it's like we can do nothing right in their eyes, and they judge us so harshly and so uncharitably. And what I've found is that when I'm judged that way, the temptation is, is for me to... To just right back at you, buddy. <laughs> is if you're gonna if you're gonna um, parse every minute failure and detail of my life, then I'm gonna do it right back at you, and uh, I can point out the myriad of your faults. But that's not the way of the Lord. I can prove it to you in other places. Uh, okay, remember in Peter's epistle when he talks about Lot, he says he says Lot, righteous Lot, Lot is a righteous man. I thought Lot was the guy who preferred to live in Sodom and Gomorrah instead of dwell in the, in the promised land. I thought Lot was the nephew of Abraham who he should have like deferred to Abraham and let Abraham have the first pick of the land. But no, 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 no. When God, when Peter judges such a life, he says he's a, he's a righteous man. Or the author of Hebrews. Remember how he includes Samson in the list of the heroes of faith in chapter 11? Don't you snicker every time you see Samson there? Only someone who is really compassionate and merciful would evaluate Lot and Samson in that fashion. Don't you want this to be your MO? The MO of your life? 
I know that when I die, I want people um, to say that he was relentlessly committed to judging his brothers and sisters as charitably as God judges them. I'm probably, really, that's, in fact, you want to put that on my tombstone? <laughs> I'd be a happy man. That's my, that's kind of like my pledge as a pastor, is try to be as relentlessly committed to judging my brothers and sisters as, ch- as charitably in my evaluation as God does. And I, I just, it's, it, it, it boggles the mind why we're so hard on each other and so hard on everybody else when this is the spirit that we should have towards each other. Blessed is the Christian who extends the same grace to others in their evaluation that God has extended to them. And it's especially important when you are waiting so that a, bitter, that a spirit of bitterness doesn't grow up inside of you while you're waiting. Finally, verse 7. Let's consider the farmer and read. Here he is. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, verse 7, until the Lord's coming. For see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. The image of the farmer is probably the most straightforward of the three that James provides. Uh, what does the farmer tell us about waiting? Uh, how does a farmer wait? How does a farmer wait? Being a city boy like I am, I should have, Eric, how does, a, <laughs> how does a farmer wait? It seems, it seems to me, um, son of the suburbs, that a farmer does pretty much everything he, he can. He does what he can. He tills the soil, he plants the seed, he covers it back up. He does everything that he can, but the most important part of farming is entirely out of his hands. If the sun doesn't rise and and the rain don't fall, then, I mean, he's out of luck and he's got nothing. See, the farmer teaches us that the most important parts of our lives are out of our hands. I really appreciate it. The, the prayer today and it, how it hit on some of those topics. You know, and friends, that's one of the ways you can loosen your grip on the future. You can loosen your grip on the future by realizing you don't have a very good grip to begin with. I mean, of the most important things, you, you've got no grip at all. One of the most frightening sentences in the English language, in my opinion, the one that seems to just push all of our anxiety buttons is the, is the phrase or the sentence that it all depends on me. It all depends on me. All of this hangs on me on, and on how I perform, how I do on the test, how the interview goes, how the, how the date goes, what, what, what first impression I'm, I'm able to give. It, just, it all depends on, on me. But if you look at your life kind of like a farmer, you see that the most important parts of it the most important parts of this life are in your Savior's hands. Your Savior's nail-pierced hands. The hands that you will actually see one day. When we are panicking about our future, we can remember that Jesus has risen from the dead. And we can remind ourselves that the hands that hold our future are the same hands that were pierced for us. We can, we can say to ourselves, Christ is risen. It's going to be okay. He's proven himself to be trustworthy time and time again. It's going to be okay. It's not all in my hands. I was really tempted this week to put into our liturgy um, a modern confession of faith that was written by 
the Reformed Church in America. Um, and I, I started reading a little more about it. It's not actually a, an actual confession of faith. It's, they consider it more of a, um, I don't know, a doctrinal song, actually. But it's entitled, Our World Belongs to God. And sec- it has 58 sections. And the final section of Our World Belongs to God, it's quite good. And this is a long quote, so you're just going to have to stick with me. We're almost done. We long for that day when Jesus will return as triumphant king. When the dead shall be raised and all the people and all people will stand before his judgment. And we face that day without fear for the judge is our savior. Our daily lives of service aim for the moment when the sun will be will be present well I'm sorry. Our daily lives of service aim for the moment when the sun will present his people to the father then God will be shown to be true, holy, and gracious, and all who have been on the Lord's side will be honored. The fruits of even small acts of obedience will be displayed, but tyrants and oppressors and all who deny the Lord will be damned. With the whole creation, we wait for the purifying fire of judgment, for only then will we see the Lord face to face. And it will be then that he will heal our hurts, end our wars, and make the crooked straight. Then we will join in the new song to the Lamb, the Lamb who made us a kingdom and priest. God will be all in all. Righteousness and peace will flourish. Everything will be made new, and every eye will see at last that our world belongs to God. Hallelujah. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Why should you trust in a God who allows such suffering in this world and in your very own life? The answer is uh, because the story isn't over yet. Because Jesus is coming. And that day is, that day, uh, is, is such a consolation to victims of injustice and oppression. On that day, God will right the wrongs and ultimately vindicate those. And um, the, reason that we, the reason that we stand is because the story isn't over. We're stuck in, I said it before, we're stuck in the middle chapters. We're like in chapter 7 of a 40-chapter book, and you just can't judge any book by chapter 7. You can only judge it by the end. The Bible tells us uh, what's part of that last chapter. I just read it. <laughs> um, and their confession, I mean, on that day, all sadness, tears, mourning, and loss will vanish when God makes all things new. I mean, part of what we celebrate in communion, when we take the cup, you remember what Jesus said like, right before they drank the last cup? He says, I'm going to drink another cup with you in the future. See, that cup is a, a weekly reminder that we will feast royally with Jesus and drink another cup face to face uh, in, the, in the last day. And the wonderful truth is we are closer now to that moment than when we walked into this room an hour ago. There is a day when we will stand up and say, sweet victory, I made it through all the pain. That day will come soon. Matt Chandler of the Village Church was speaking about Uh, how we recognize, how we experience the passage of time. And uh, he says this, he says, my life could be described in this way, as very long days with very fast years. 
My days are long. I go to bed tired. And then the next thing I know, it's the year 2020. Very long, uh, long days, short years. It's slow, but it's flying. And time works for us this way. That day will be here before we know it. Seventy times he swung the axe and he repelled the enemy. Each time he swung the axe, he said, day shall come again. I realize that the church has endured two millennia of extended waiting for that day. And I join you in in being baffled that it's still taking so long to come. But Jesus is worth trusting. He stood on nail-pierced feet so that we would know him not only as our judge but as our savior. Friends, you're almost there. Hyperstand <laughs> and be gracious while you're hyperstanding. We're almost home where we will meet the one who is both compassionate and merciful. Amen.